St. James. Glad that you're here with us worshiping this morning. A real quick announcement about Bible study. We do a Bible study at 1030 uh, Central Time after the morning worship service. If you'd like to be involved with that, and you don't have to be a member to be involved with that, uh, please send me an email address. You can find that on the website, and I will send you a link to a Zoom meeting. If you are, uh, if you are already in the Bible study, you should have received a link this morning, but if you want to participate and you did not receive that email, Please let me know sometime before 10.30, and I'll get you out an invitation. Let's go ahead and begin worship. We begin, as we always do, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all-holy, Father most gracious, Filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble. 
for we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether. And therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father, most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, for he is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all your sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Uh, the psalm this morning is Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in the book of Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Another reading of this Sunday, uh, continuing our readings in the book of Acts, this is from Acts chapter 2, right after the Pentecost sermon, and it describes the earliest Jesus followers and the way they related to each other, what their priorities were, were and how they worshipped. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel reading goes along with the Psalm 23 reading. Uh, it's one of Jesus' claims to be the good shepherd from John chapter 10. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them 
but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. sermon text for this morning, a continuing on with our reading in Romans 5 through 8, is Romans 5 verses 12 through 21. And I'd encourage you this morning, if you don't have a copy of the bulletin in front of you, which has the scripture printed out in it, um, to grab a Bible and follow along. And it goes like this. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, he's talking about Adam there. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a rough text, and it's about death, and it's about sin, and it's a good thing, honestly, that the first part of Romans 5, which we looked at the the past couple weeks, is all about the love of God. Paul's got to assure us before he gets into this part of the story, and and remember what's going on in Romans 5 through 8. Paul's going to tell the whole story of the universe. He's going to tell the big story starting with, in our text this morning, Adam, and ending up in Romans 8 with the new creation. But the first part of the story is so bleak, filled up with sin and unrighteousness and condemnation and eventually death, that Paul has to tell us last week and the week before that, that God loves us. Like if if you've ever had a conversation with somebody where they started off the conversation with, look, I have to talk to you before we begin, I just want to assure you before you hear what I have to say, I really do love you. You know that what's about to happen is not going to be very comfortable. And that's what Paul's done to us. He starts off Romans 5 assuring us that God has poured his love through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And then he gets right into this stuff with Adam and the sin and the death and the condemnation that have come from him. So let's start looking at verse 12. And we're not going to make it through the whole text this morning. We're basically going to get down through verses 12 through 15. Verse 12 is one of the most important verses in the Bible, though, because it is the classic text about original sin. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul's describing two different types of sin there, two different perspectives on sin, One is the sin that we call original sin, and one is the sin that we call actual sin. Just as sin came into the world through one man, he says. In other words, when Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world. Sin wasn't there before that. Adam brings it in. And as a result of that one man's sin and death through that sin, death spreads to all of us. This is original sin. 
Adam sinned, and you and I are being punished for it. We don't like this, of course, because it goes against our sense of fair play, our sense of what justice actually is. Probably our sense of justice needs to be critiqued. And we need to recognize that because our father Adam sinned, and we're in him, we deserve this. Not because it's fair, not because it somehow makes sense to our consciences, but because God says, in Adam's fall, we all sinned. It's not just as simple enough, though, as to blame Adam for it. Because that last line in verse 12, because all sinned, is an interesting one. He starts off with Adam's sin. Adam's sin brings sin into the world, which brings death into the world. And then he says, because all sinned. So whose fault is it that you and I die? Whose fault is it that we struggle with sin? Whose fault is it that we live in an evil world? And the answer is, Adam's. He's the one whose initial rebellion brought this into the world. But also, ours. We've all sinned. It's not that we're somehow innocent. And Adam's all to blame for this. In fact, as we read through here, read through Romans 5 here, and if we jumped over to 1 Corinthians 15, we would see this played out. 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Adam we've all died. Psalm 51 echoes this when it says, In sin my mother conceived me. Even in my mother's womb, I was in sin. That original sin is there, but then there's also the actual sin. The sin that I choose to commit. The link, though, is this. It's not simply, as we read through Romans 5, we'll get this. The link is not simply that Adam is somehow a bad example to me, but somehow in Adam's primal sin, I've been programmed to sin in that. It's still my choice. Sometimes it's not my choice. Sometimes I sin so much that it just happens to me. It happens through me. It happens because I'm in Adam. But it's still my sin because all sinned, he says at the end of verse 12. Now, we're going to end up with hope. Like I said, this morning is going to be kind of bleak. Next week and the week to follow, it will start getting better. I'm not going to leave you without any hope in the text this morning. We'll get to verse 15. But this is pretty bad right now. Paul starts off, and now I've got to point out to you something in the text, which is classic Paul stuff. Paul's going to say here, do you notice in verse 12, Paul says, look at it with me, just as sin came into the world, he says, just as, and that just as begs for a so also to come after it. But there is no so also until you get to verse 18. And if you're looking at the ESV, you'll notice at the end of verse 12, there's like a hyphen. That's because Paul starts a sentence. He says, just as sin entered the world, but then he doesn't pick up the so also until he gets to verse 18. He's, he interrupts himself. Paul does this all the time. He interrupts himself with two clarifications that he wants to make. One is in verses 13 and 14. And one is in verses 15 to 17. We're going to talk about verses 13 to 14 and the clarification he wants to make there. Next week, we'll unpack 15 through 17, although I'll mention verse 15 at the end of the sermon here in a bit. Verse 13 and 14, he's going to answer the question. He starts off saying that sin came into the world through the first humans, and so death came by sin. And then he anticipates this question. Well, wait a minute. The law given to Moses on Mount Sinai didn't come until long, long after Adam and Eve lived. How can God find fault with people to whom he's not yet given the law? And the answer is verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, before Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. It wasn't that sin didn't exist before that. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. And he doesn't mean that sin isn't there. He doesn't mean that sin is okay. He just means it's not counted. It's like the David Letterman joke about the, the unpopular tourism things to do in New York City. And one of them is to look outside your hotel room with the Gideon Bible in hand and check off the Ten Commandments as you watch them being broken. It's not that the Ten Commandments aren't being broken. It's that you're noticing them and you're marking down specific commands that are being violated. That's not happening. In fact, he says, the way that people sin before Moses actually isn't even like Adam's sin. That's what he says in verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What was the transgression of Adam like? Well, Adam violated a specific command of God, just like you and I do. Now that we have the Ten Commandments, they're written down on paper. When we break them, we're, we're violating specific commands. People did that before Moses, though. Well, another way that you know that sin was in the world before Moses is that people were dying. If death is a result of sin, like verse 12 says, verse 13 says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Everybody died, which is a sure sign that everybody sinned. Right? So, this means, Paul's main point here with this caveat is, nobody escapes this. Even if you don't have the law written down, if you're a human if you are a son or daughter of Adam, you have been programmed to sin by Adam's sin. And because of that programming, you and I willfully choose to sin. Nobody can escape this. Now there's hope. Because in verse 15, actually at the end of verse 14, he makes this weird comment. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And then he goes through the rest of the chapter, he goes through this parallels and also differences between Adam and the type of the one who was to come, Jesus. Adam sins and introduces death. Jesus comes and does the one righteous act and introduces life. And that's why he says in verse 15, the free gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's, Adam's, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sin is not the end of the story. Jesus promises that he will win, that he will get rid of it. That's essentially the sermon right there. I'd like to make, if I can for the next few minutes, just three sort of outworkings of this basic principle. Because Adam sinned, we died in him, it causes our sin, it causes our deaths, even though we sin willfully. But Jesus has promised by his grace to overcome that original primal sin and you and your sin and my individual willful sins. So, three outworkings. First of all, sin is a human problem. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. And every single problem that you have can be traced back to Adam's sin and to the sins of me and you which flow through that whether it's uh, fractured relationships, whether it's the coronavirus, all these come from Adam's fall. In the next two weeks, we'll see this unpacked. There's a in Adam versus in Christ tension here to being human. In fact, Paul's going to insist there's two ways to be human. You can be in Adam or you can be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Adam? What does it mean to be in Christ? 
I've talked, if you're familiar with, uh, if you've been here to St. James before, you've heard me talk about being in Christ, being plugged into Jesus in such a way that what's true about Jesus in God's eyes is true about me and you too, those of us who are in Christ. Being in Adam functions the same way. Being in Adam, what's one of the main differences though is that being in Adam is natural. Nothing has to happen for you to be in Adam except for you have to be born. If you are genetically, biologically related to Adam, you're in Adam. You've inherited his sin. To be in Christ, though, it's not natural. It's supernatural. Something from the outside has to happen. God has to become flesh. He has to die on the cross and rise from the dead. The Holy Spirit has to apply his death and resurrection to me and you to put us in Christ. So while being in Adam is natural, it's easy, It's just as easy as rolling out of bed in the morning. Being in Christ is supernatural. It takes an act of God to us. Being in Adam is destructive. We walk around messing up everything. We walk around destroying little bits and pieces of our life and the lives of those around us. Being in Christ is restorative, though. It's Jesus who starts to put these little pieces back together. Being in Adam is death. It's guaranteed to every single human being that they'll die. It's not natural. It's not the way it was designed to be. But now it's a part of human nature. In that sense, it's natural because being in Adam is guaranteed death. But being in Christ is guaranteed life. See, this is a human problem. It involves all of us. It depends upon, the question is, what kind of human are you going to be? Are you going to be the broken, destructive, death-bound human that we all are in Adam? Or, by the grace of Jesus Christ, will you be restorative, supernaturally powered, prone to life, destined for life, human being that got the new, true human being that God is designing his people to be in his son Jesus Christ? Sin is a human problem. Second of all, sin is a parasite. In verse 12, we saw this. Just as sin came into the world, sin is not some sort of like primal, universal, cosmic reality. Sin is an intruder. In fact, here in Romans, actually in the whole Bible, but here in Romans 5 verse 12, the world comes first. God creates the world and then sin finds a way to worm itself into the world like a parasite, like an alien, like a virus. Sin manages to get in. But this means that sin is secondary. This means that sin is not guaranteed. It's not somehow inherent. There's been a world that's existed without sin. That gives us hope that there will be a world someday that will exist without sin too. Look, can I talk to those of you who aren't believers, those of you who aren't Christians for just a few seconds. There's two distinct ways that the contemporary human being deals with the problem of sin and evil. One way is to say that there's no such thing as sin and evil that sin and evil doesn't exist. And I freely admit this is a minority view, but it's getting bigger and bigger. And if philosophers are talking about it, if musicians are singing about it, if poets are writing about it, you can can be guaranteed to know that within a generation, the people on the street will be thinking in these terms. In fact, some of you might be thinking this already. There's no really such thing as sin and evil. The best example I can think of, or the clearest example, is an episode of This American Life, the podcast called Where There's a Will. And the host of this particular episode, David Kestenbaum, who is a Harvard-trained astrophysicist, 
talks about the question of, like, what does it mean to be a human being where there's no free will? And he freely admits that he does not believe in human free agency. How can you? There is no such thing as personhood. There's no such thing as spirit. All there is is biology. All there is is neurons firing. All there is is muscles twitching. There's no such thing as sin or evil in that case. In fact, in this, I encourage you to go listen to this. In this podcast, he says that we need to have a drastic rethinking of the criminal justice system. I'm not saying that's not true, but, but I don't believe for the reason that he says. Because if it's true that there's no free will, if, there, if it's true that there's no sort of free agency, that that means that there's no such thing as sin or evil. There's nothing that any of us can do that could be described as objectively evil. You wouldn't call a dog who stole another dog's food a sinner, right? You would just say the dog's doing what its biology demands. It's hungry. It doesn't have a sense of fair play. It doesn't have a sense of justice. It just knows that there's food over there. I might have to fight for that food, but if I can get it, it's my food. Look, this sort of like philosophizing, this sort of discussion about there's no such thing as evil kind of works in a white person, Western, ivory tower sort of context where the weather's good and the food is cheap and everybody's sort of nice. But if you're, if you're one of the members of an oppressed society, this doesn't make any sense at all. You know that there's evil. Try telling the people who were in the prison camps and the Holocaust and in the death camps that there's no such thing as evil. All there is is biology. We know intuitively this is wrong. And the reason why we know this is because we know that God exists. Which brings me to my second way that the contemporary human deals with evil. And you've heard me talk about this before. The secondary way is to say this. The second way is to say this. Evil is all there is. In fact, I can't even believe that there's a God because I can't believe that there's a God that exists when there's so much evil. But can I argue this to you? That you can't not believe in a God because of the evil. I agree with you that the world is an evil place. That sin is a real legitimate thing. But you and I have no right to call that sin evil if there is no God. If there is no God, David Kestenbaum's right. All there is is your opinion and my opinion and our biologies. And you can say, I think that racism is wrong. But really, you're just saying, I don't like racism. Wait a minute, you might say to me, everybody sort of agrees that this is true. I don't think that that's actually, I don't think that that's actually true. Not everybody agrees that racism is wrong. What about the people who don't? Do you have a right to tell them that they're objectively wrong? If you believe the evil is all there is and there is no God, you have no right to tell them that they're objectively wrong because there's no God in the center of the room to say that anything is objectively wrong or right. It's just your opinion versus their opinion. But let me argue that you know that racism is wrong. You know that oppression is wrong. You know that murder is wrong. And the reason why you know these things is wrong is because there is a God. There is a God who says that these things are wrong. And in fact, our text is not going to let us get away with either of these, with either the notion that sin and evil doesn't exist or the notion that sin and evil is all that there is. Because sin is a usurper. There's something before sin. It's not that evil, it's not that you and I are manifestations of evil. There is a reality before evil. Evil is a parasite into the world. Verse 12 says that much. Verses 12 through 21 are interesting for this reason. Let me, let me give you another reason why 
Let me, let me just say, this is the way that this text is not going to let us get away with these two errors. Because this text describes sin the way you and I experience sin, the way you and I know sin and evil to be. Paul uses the word, the verb for rule, to rule or to reign, nine times over the whole course of his writings. It's interesting that here in this text, he uses it five out of those nine times. Let me give you those examples here as it pertains to sin. Verse 14, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In verse 17, he says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. In verse 21, he says, so that as sin reigned in death, death is reigning. Sin is reigning or ruling. This is the way that Paul describes sin or evil, the way that you experience it. Not a philosophical objection, but as an attempt to rule your life. Sin wants to control you. Sin is pictured here almost personified, like a fake king, king who's come into territory that doesn't belong to him, which is exactly, what, is exactly what's happening in the biblical story, and wants to take it over and wants to control and dominate it. That's what sin is doing to me and you. Sin is like a, you know, sin is, and when it gets there, it, it's parasitic. It eats away at anything it comes in contact with. It rules and reigns to, like all bad kings do. It rules and reigns to manipulate and suck dry the thing that it rules and reigns. My daughter and I watched uh, the, the Humphrey Bogart movie, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, this week. And if you've seen that movie, you've seen that there's the main character, Humphrey Bogart's character, is going to go out with some friends of his looking for gold. And an old man tells him, if you do that, the lust and greed for gold is going to eat at your soul. And Bogart says, now that won't be the case for me. I'm, I can be satisfied with what I get. At the end of the movie, he ends up trying to kill somebody, one of his friends. He ends up being killed by bandits because of his lust. For, this is what sin does to us. It takes the goodness and the life out of God's creation and it saps it dry. Like a strangler fig. Have you ever seen one of those strangler figs? It's a tropical plant that wraps its vines around a living tree, sucks the nutrients out of it until the tree dies and decays, and all that's left is this framework of a living strangler fig with an empty spot in the middle where a tree used to be. This is what sin is. Sin actually isn't a thing. Sin is the negation of a thing. Sin isn't something positive. It's something negative. Death isn't a thing. Death is the absence of life. Sin isn't a thing. Sin is the absence of righteousness. And it wants to rule and reign over us to take away the life, to take away the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. It wants to sap those things and destroy them. That's the world that you and I live in. Whether it's something big and evil, the most evil thing I can think of right now is the Holocaust, or whether it's something small and something that we think is not a big deal. A smug eye roll at somebody who makes a comment we don't like. All of these things are sin, and it desires to control us to dominate, to enslave us, and to sap us empty. The good news, though, is in verse 15. And that is that sin and death are nothing compared to what God has planned for us in Jesus Christ. Now, I know this has been largely negative. Next week, it's going to be largely positive. But let me just end by giving you a little bit of good news. And that's in, let me read verse 15 again. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, if death is like 
if death is one thing, much more, much greater than death, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What's he saying? He's saying this. Sin and death, the false rulers that are evil, they're bad. But grace and life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me and you who believe in him, they're much, much greater than that sin is even bad. You see, God's plan for you is not just to like pay you back for what's been done. It's not just to say, okay, sin destroyed my creation. I'm going to fix it and repair it. Sin has destroyed me. Sin has destroyed Aaron Miller. I'm going to fix him the way he was designed to be. Grace is much more strong than that. The love of Jesus Christ is so powerful. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are so extremely powerful that they give back even more. San Francisco, my wife and I love San Francisco. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, we think. And prior to 1989, prior to the big earthquake in 1989, San Francisco was certainly a beautiful city. A lot of it was damaged. A lot of it was destroyed, but a lot of it, a lot, much more of it was even damaged by that earthquake in 1989. What the city of San Francisco did after that, though, was not just to fix everything, but to ask themselves the question, how can we make this even better? We're not just going to put the city back to the way it was before the earthquake, but we're going to fix it. One example is this. There were highways that cut through downtown San Francisco, much like they do in St. Louis, uh, my home city, eating, cutting away the life out of existing neighborhoods, putting huge gashes in communities. There was a huge double-decker freeway that ran along the bay, cutting off the view from the city. If you were in the city and you wanted to look out into San Francisco Bay, your view would be blocked by this huge concrete double-decker freeway. After the earthquake, that freeway was removed. All of the highways into the city were removed and the communities were, stored again, were restored again. San Francisco is a much more beautiful city than it was even before the earthquake. Something similar is what Jesus is designing for me and you. In him, the life that he has planned for us by the power of his grace is so much more than we could even imagine. It's not just fixing the sin problem. It's not just fixing the death problem. It's giving us abundantly even more than what you and I imagine as righteousness and life to be. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus we know and love. That's the work that Jesus is doing. That's the work that we're going to unpack next week and the week after that. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray, uh, praise you and we love you and we ask you this morning to begin confirming in our minds that the problems of sin and evil are temporary, parasitic problems that you are determined by the power of your Holy Spirit working by and with your word to eradicate and then to renew us, those of us who have been affected by sin, and to renew your creation, which we've affected uh, with sin. And as we read through the story of Romans 5-8, through 8, and we track as you bring us through the baptism into union with Christ with your Son and the battle with our flesh that happens as we grapple with the law and the crying out that our souls do for your new creation to come through the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 and finally through the glory that you are going to give to your creation and to those of us who are in you at the end of Romans 8 that you would open our eyes afresh to this new understanding of the brokenness which we've never even imagined is as bad as it is, 
but also the grace which we're now seeing is even better than we imagined, abounding more and more in your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray as always, Father, that you would be with those who are affected by this coronavirus and everybody who's struggling with all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of troubles. I want to pray especially this morning for someone that those of us who are members at St. James know and love, uh, for Norval, who's struggling physically uh, with all of this and is uh, uh, struggling with falling and with um, just general weakness. And I pray that you would pour strength and energy and healing into his body, that you would pour lucidity into his mind, that you would give him hope and strength and energy, convince him and convince all of us of the power of your son's resurrection, of your determination to make all things new and to renew us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, open up our hearts and minds to those around us. Help us not to shelter in our homes and uh, help us not to, uh, even when we are sheltering in our homes, to not have the mindset of protecting us and protecting ours. But help us in our hearts and minds, in the name of your son, Jesus, to love the communities around us. And also to have a heart, a desire to love the communities around us. Give us opportunities to do this in ways that are appropriate and safe. Uh, Be with our governing leaders as they make decisions. May they be wise decisions. May they be be decisions that benefit and tend towards the proclamation of the gospel. Be with our first responders, especially uh, be with people who are working in the healthcare industry on the front lines of this. Uh, Protect them and keep them safe. Father, as always, uh, forgive our sins, open our eyes to your glory, help us to give you and you only praise for all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
confess our faith together with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. My dwelling place is God most high, my refuge and my fortress. When plagues and pestilence draw nigh, I'm hidden in His presence. When terrors fall and arrows fly, His shield will be When stones across my pathway lie, on angels' wings I'm carried. My dwelling place is God most high, a present in danger. I rest secure in love's pure light Beneath my master's favor He freed me from the fowler's snare Where sin and shame had bound me Deceived I'd make my refuge there To fearness he Wonderful 
Whoa! 